This is our 61st fireside chat. Glad you all could join us today. We have a new member here, uh, and Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, if you would like to start with your question, that would be great. Hi, everyone. I had the opportunity, Tom, to go to the cabin retreat last spring, and there was some discussion around seeing without eyes. And I believe that either you or your wife had mentioned that you had heard about a similar program in California in the U.S. and that you might be uh, interested in attending that someday. So I was just curious if either of you or maybe one of your friends had been able to attend a program, a similar program in the U.S. and if you could uh, comment on it. Uh, no, have not attended any in the U.S. But once we got home from Germany, uh, Pamela was very interested in our grandchildren and perhaps children in taking the course. So she did some research to find out how they could do it without flying all the way to Europe to do it. And she found several places in the U.S. where it's possible to do a similar course. Now, it wouldn't be the same course because it's not the same people teaching it. Uh, it's not necessarily even the same methodology, but it has the same end result, which is the scene without eyes. So that's about as much as we know. And Pamela can give you probably the results of her research, like what were the places and what, what were their email, you know, what, what's their email and what's their web addresses and that sort of thing, if you're interested. But if that's the case, then uh, uh, send me an email or send one to Pamela and uh, she'll tell you what she knows about it. But we don't have any direct experience with it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, last time we didn't get to some of the questions and some of those questions that people had that we've left off with are not here. So we'll wait for that. And let me read Julie's question. Julie K., whose question didn't get asked last time. Uh, Tom, you spoke about changing and controlling others and how it is not our place to do so, and I agree. The only thing we can change is ourselves, right? What are your thoughts on changing ourselves and helping ourselves grow? I would think pushing ourselves is not ideal. However, what about nudging ourselves forward? A simple down-to-earth example, a person finds it very challenging to manage money. They often have difficulty remembering spending it and then feel terrible when it's all gone and might not want to repeat this in the future. But the next paycheck comes and they decide to not even try and just say, I'm just bad with money and I guess I'll just have to suffer. Other people should take care of this. One simple thing they can do is track their spending by writing it down in a book so they're aware of how much is left after the purchases. They decide they want won't do that because when they try, uh, they are this one way and cannot change. If there was no suffering, there would be no problem. But this poor money management is causing a lot of problems for them. What are your thoughts? Should the person not try to help themselves? Is there an opportunity to grow beyond this? And is it worth trying? Well, yes, yes, and yes to all of those. Yes, it is worth it. Yes, they should try to help themselves. And, uh, of course, they can grow beyond it. Um, whenever you see something that uh, is dysfunctional going on in your life, that is, it does not lead you to happiness. It does not lead you to uh, 
to joy and to peace and to feeling satisfied. If you've got things in your life that aren't leading you in that direction, then we can call those dysfunctional because everything that's functional should be leading you to, to, uh, you know, positive outcomes. So if you find things in your life that are dysfunctional, then absolutely you should try to, to, uh, change these things. As you said, you cannot directly change other people. You can only give them environment that helps them change themselves, but you can directly change yourself and you should. But some people can do that with a very direct approach. They can just say, well, I'm just not going to do that anymore. Whatever that is with your example, just kind of spend money because you have it because you have a need to do that. But whatever the issue is, some people can just directly do it and say, well, just not going to do that anymore. And they have enough willpower to not do that anymore. It's just that easy. They just focus their intent and they do it. But that's probably the small minority. Most people have to work at it um, a little harder than that, where they try very hard not to do it, but then they find themselves doing it anyway to some extent, but hopefully doing it less than they would have. And they keep working on it, and that that less keeps growing to where after maybe six months or a year or two years or a decade, who knows how long this process will take. That's very individual. You actually have beaten that problem and you don't do that dysfunctional thing anymore. And the only thing you really need to succeed is an intent, a strong being level intent that you will succeed, that you want to let go of the dysfunctional behavior. If you really want to, then you will. And that's all you need because the really wanting to let go of it, putting that intent out there, not only automatically raises the probability that it'll happen, but it'll cause you to do those things to help you change. And if you continually have that intent, not just for a week, but for as long as it takes, then you will succeed. You'll be able to get rid of any fear or any other, you know, negative dysfunctional thing in your system just with a strong being level intent to get rid of it. Now, if that intent is not being level, if it's just intellectual, oh, I should get rid of this. I see where it's a problem in my life and I really should get rid of it. That's an intellectual intent. Okay, you've seen the problem. But a being level intent is where you have gone from just seeing the problem to really having a deep want and desire to change it, to get rid of the problem. Not just because you think you should, but because you really want to. If you do things like this because you think you should, oh, I should lose weight, or I should quit smoking, I should whatever it is, and it's just because you think you should, because you realize it's dysfunctional, that's all intellectual and it probably won't work. You're just really pretending. You're doing the things you think you should. But if you really do want to get rid of it at a being level, at a core of you, you want to get rid of it, then you will. So first step is to own it and say, okay, I have this problem. And the second step is to actually desire at the being level to outgrow it. And then let it take as long as it takes. You may have to sneak up on it. You may have to do it over, you know, five years. You may get it done in a week. It really depends on how determined you are and how much you really desire to do it. So that's the key. So yes, indeed, you can.
And yes, indeed, you should. But you can't do it successfully with your intellect. You just, if it's, if it's not a, a sincere being level intent, then mostly it won't work. You'll get a little progress and then it'll backslide and then you'll forget about it and then you'll try again and get a little progress and backslide. I mean, most of you know people who try to quit smoking and they go through that process and, you know, maybe they quit for a few months, but it doesn't seem to ever hold or ever work and they're just not successful at being able to, to quit, it seems. Well, that's because they're working from their intellect. They're trying to quit because they think they should, not because at a deep level they really want to. So that's the that's the key idea here. You have to really want to change. Okay, Tom, thank you. Abdul, we, we don't have you on the <coughs> camera. We do have you on um, Yeah, I actually don't have the webcam on, but I can hear you fine. Okay, would you like to ask your question? Yeah, so um, actually my question was pretty much similar to the one that you just asked. I actually do want to ask a follow-up though. So, I mean, I'm personally definitely having issues quitting smoking. Um, I do, you know, I, I smoke three or four days, I take breaks, but I, I just can't get myself to quit. So my question really is, Tom, um, how can I how can I move on from the stage where I think it's intellectual to where I really want to do it? Or how can I speed up this process? Could you tell me perhaps an exercise? For example, uh, talking to myself 30 minutes every day, trying to convince myself about the bad effects of smoking. Would something like that help where it would become uh, a being level intent thing? Or do, do you kind of see what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. It depends on the individual as far as what works. The talking to yourself could work or it could just stay right in the intellect. It's hard to say. I had that same problem probably, I don't know, 50, 50 some years ago when uh, I had been a smoker for some time. I quit somewhere in my, I don't know, middle 20s, I guess, maybe early 20s. And I had uh, decided to quit several times before that, but like you, it didn't really take. And then one day, I just looked at it, and in my mind, I said, you know, the smoking, I'm a drug addict. I smoke because I have a, you know, I have a need to smoke. I have a want to smoke. I have that desire. And it's not really because this smoking is such a wonderful thing. And, oh, it just, I wouldn't smoke. It just tastes so good. You know, I realized that's just BS. That's, those are the lies you tell yourself to justify what it is you're doing. It's because you're a drug addict. That's why you smoke. You're addicted to the stuff. And once I had that realization that I was a drug addict, that the, that the addiction had much more downside than it had upside. And here I was a, an addict. And that was all it took. As soon as that realization hit, I said, I don't want to be a drug addict. And it's no different than any other drug addict addicted to any other drug. It's all the same sort of thing. And when I got that at the being level, something amazing happened. I quit, period, and had absolutely zero withdrawals. That was it. I didn't have any urge to, you know, how smokers, when they quit, it's, well, it's that after-dinner moment, you know. It's that, uh, you know, they go out and they do certain things or within certain contexts where they smoke all the time, you have these, these you really 
want a cigarette and you have to somehow have the willpower to, you know, to not take one. I didn't have any of that. No withdrawal whatsoever. It was just done. And I was done with it. And I've talked to other people and they've had the same experience. Once you get to that your being level that you just don't want to be that way anymore. It's not, I don't want to smoke that cigarette anymore. It's, I don't want to be a drug addict anymore. And when I got to that, then it was just done. Now, I had before that tried to quit smoke several times, and it dribbled on. I would quit sometimes for months, sometimes six months, once even for a year. And then something would happen, and it was, well, you know, yeah, just one, just this time, because everybody else is smoking, and it just feels like a good thing that would feel good. So I do it. And then after that, a week later, I do it again. And pretty soon, you know, every two or three days, I'd have, you know, bum cigarettes from other people. I wouldn't actually buy any because then that would mean that I had become a smoker. So all I did was, was you know, borrow cigarettes from all my friends. And I guess that got pretty annoying for them. Uh, you know, why don't you go buy your own? And eventually I realized I was back in it again. So, yes, I had a lot of withdrawals that, and I found very difficult to to deal with those with those withdrawals until I decided I didn't want to be that way anymore and end. No withdrawals, no second guesses, no later moments where, you know, everybody else is smoking after a big dinner and they're serving coffee and people light up their cigarettes. And my attitude was, I want to leave because I, after you quit, sometimes you get very sensitive. And I didn't want to be around the smell of smoke, not because, you know, it, it was a part of an addiction problem. I didn't want to be around it because it smelled bad and it made me sneeze. And uh, you know, I seemed to have a, an allergy to it. So my body just rejected it completely. And I think that is the way it is with most drugs, even the, you know, the recreational drugs, the uh you know the, the the hard stuff that's illegal i think it works the same way if you try to quit because you think you should because your family wants you to because you know that it's not a good thing all that's intellectual and you don't quit that way you have a lot of withdrawals but if you get to the point that you really do at the being level you know want to not be a drug addict anymore and there's just there is no ifs or buts about it. The answer is just no. Then I find that the withdrawals disappear. People who do that, no matter what the drug is, seem to don't have withdrawals or have very weak withdrawals, and they get over it much more quickly. The withdrawals are there because some part of you really isn't committed to not being a drug addict anymore. There's some part of you that wants to do it still. But when 100% of you wants to quit, quitting is easy. So that would be my advice, to get to the point that you really want to do it, not because other people want you to, because your family wants you to, because it makes you smell bad. You know, you have all these reasons, and you can make all kinds of excuses how you're going to compensate for those, all those reasons. But just you want to because you don't want to be that anymore. That's the key. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. And uh, I, had, I did have another question as well. Um, 
So I was watching a news clip the other day, according to which uh, medical science has now progressed to the point where parents have the option of selecting the gender of their child. Now, this practice is banned in Canada, Australia, and the UK, but not in the States. Um, what does MBD have to say regarding the ethics of this practice? Well, you've caught me flat-footed on that one. I never really thought about that. It's the it's the ability to have choice. Yeah, so basically, the- yeah, yeah, they can actually select if, you know, if you want a boy or a girl, they can kind of do that now, apparently. Well, how do they do that? Uh, they make the... They make this selection uh, before um, conception, and then well, it's certain. Yeah, I feel like they separate the X and the Y chromosome, and then they uh, meet them um, individually. They, 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 they actually they have. Um, I've heard that they can even select eye color and hair color. Obviously, that would depend on if their parents carry that gene or not. But they can even do that now. So they're taking egg and sperm and sorting it in some way, and then just putting together the ones that have the traits they like. Yes. And then implanting that in in the uh, in the woman's uterus so that it can uh, you know grow there. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that that was possible. I knew that 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 there were some people that uh, you know I have a daughter-in-law who uh, has two little boys and she would love to have a little girl and uh, she was thinking that there was some centrifuge uh, thing where you would put the sperm in a centrifuge and spin it and the sperm that was going to create girls is evidently higher or heavier or lighter than than the other sperm and it actually separates and it has like an 80% probability that that uh, if you use that method and then they artificially seminate the 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 female with the husband's sperm that's been separated uh I understood there was only about an 80% chance that that was going to work. You know, it wasn't uh, an absolute thing. So you're saying that there is kind of an absolute thing, or is it something in the future that you're talking um, about? To be honest, I saw this like a while ago. Um, this might be, I mean, what you're saying, it might be exactly what you're saying, the centrifuge thing. Um, but either way, my point was, is it ethical to do a practice like that, you know, um, especially when it comes to gender selection? Yeah, if, you know, the thing that uh, my daughter-in-law was thinking about, you know, having uh, uh, her husband's sperm spun and then take out that part of that, that that sperm that was more likely to produce a girl. Um, I haven't really thought about this in any depth, but just off the top of my head, I don't see an ethical issue with that. Um, you know, that's a long way from choosing, you know, eye color or hair color or that sort of thing. That's just choosing sex. And it's not a, it's not a hundred percent. It just raises the probability. And you know, for, for ages, there's been things, there's been, um, ways to raise the probability of having a girl or a boy eat certain kinds of food, uh, you know, do certain kinds of things that, uh, were supposed to favor one or the other. So that's been around for, centuries probably mostly doesn't work or it works only you know to a small degree but there are such such things have been around forever and i don't really see a problem with that if people want to do that that seems to me is something personal to the people you know ethics only comes in when what you do affects other people that's ethics is about about the things you do affecting other people. If the things you do affect other people in negative ways, and it's a thing of, well, this is what I want, but it hurts you, now that's an ethical situation. 
do you hurt other people to get what you want or is you know is that not a good idea so that kind of defines ethics but if this is solely about the people doing it and whether my daughter-in-law has a boy or a girl i don't see that as really affecting other people a whole lot so i think it you know sounds ethically all right although i haven't really studied the problem and all of its ramifications i don't see a problem with it from an ethical viewpoint now if you get to the point that we're actually doing uh, genetic engineering where we can you know uh, say well we can make uh, you know we can get in and rearrange the genes and rearrange the chromosomes and do all of that and we'll make them faster stronger better and so on now we do have social you know uh, uh effects of that now we don't just have individuals uh doing things for themselves we have you know many thousands or hundreds of thousands of people being generated you know to kind of custom design their level of intelligence or their looks or their hair color or eye color now we have a different animal altogether so i you know i'm not giving a blanket um thumbs up ethically to all such things but just to um what you talked about you know someone trying to raise the probability that they'll get a girl or a boy um i don't see an ethical problem with that if it becomes a, a a lot more invasive where there are cultural effects you know then and there are effects to humanity then i see that there is an ethical issue we need to do that very carefully you know if we start creating superhumans that all have iqs of you know at least 160 or higher and they all you know are six and a half feet tall and they're all big and strong and have uh, hugely effective immune systems and never get sick and we create these people is that good or is that a problem you know that's i can see has has uh, impacts on our culture on everybody here and that then becomes an ethical issue whether we should do this or not whether that's a, a good thing or a bad thing for humanity in general in the long term but just whether somebody wants to raise the probabilities of having a girl or a boy i don't really see that as a as an issue besides as a process that is invasive enough that you have to to have this done you know it's one in which the husband has to go uh, you know offer up his sperm and it puts it in a machine and spins it and then the lady has to go through the process of having that uh, you know put into her to fertilize her egg and all of that it's a it's a cumbersome enough process that it's not like it's going to be done you know everybody's going to do it it's probably uh, you know too much trouble and too expensive to ever get more than you know a very small small percentage of the population would ever bother with that it's not a matter of taking a girl pill or a boy pill you know and uh, having that make a make a difference and maybe if it gets to that then might there might be some social issues involved in it but the way it is now i say no problem what might happen in the future who knows we'll have to look at that in the future and see what sort of ethics belongs to it Awesome. Thank you, Tom. I do appreciate that. Thank you, Tom. Gulam, you've got a question on motivation and focus issues. Please go ahead with your question. This is actually, this is actually Yasmina. My daughter wants to ask you, Tom. Yes. Hi. 
Um, so I'm a 16 year old um, girl and I go to high school now and I've had some troubles um, or issues with um, motivation and actually doing well at school and having um, the ability to focus and do well at school. And so my uh, question is, do you have any advice on what I can do to get my motivation? Well, motivation often comes from your, your idea of value. You know, if you, if you look at your school experience, you have some idea of how valuable that is, you know, and not necessarily in a big picture, but just in the everyday picture, how valuable you have the social interactions and sometimes those can be good and sometimes those can be very painful. You have, um, the, uh, you know, the academic part. And often in schools, things are taught in such a way that you don't have any idea what the significance of that is. You know, why do I need to learn all this stuff? You know, what difference does it make to my life that I find out that so-and-so did something 500 years ago? You know, why is that important in life? Well, as it turns out, all those things are significant in life, but not generally the way they're taught to you our education has turned out to be almost sterile in many ways you know it's not whether so you know whether uh, you know somebody did a particularly amazing thing 500 years ago that changed the course of history that's not the point memorizing facts has very little value and when you see learning as memorization of facts then learning becomes very sterile and not very interesting. You have to see the bigger picture. You have to see, well, how did that come about? How did this person end up doing that? How did all the other people who supported it, because if a person just does something amazing all by himself and no other people are affected, it doesn't matter how amazing it is. It's not all that important. It doesn't become a a historical thing. It's because other people got involved, that this person somehow did something that got a whole lot of other people doing things. And how did that dynamics work? And why did it work that way? What was it in that society that people were ready to move in that direction? And this important historical guy was just the catalyst that made it happen. He's not really the important thing. It's the, it's what was going on. The feelings, the emotions, the understanding that was going on within the culture at the time, and then the catalyst that that was the spark that created the event that became the big historical event. We tend to look at it as people. Oh, so-and-so did this. You know, well, people don't do things like that. It's they and all of their connections to all the other people that were around at the time, to the politics, to the sociology, to the environment. You have all of these things was just right so that these things happened. And if we learn in school to memorize the names of the catalyst, you know, who was there at the right time to get all that going, then it seems pretty dull. What value is that? There's not a lot of value in that. And kids know that. They look at a lot of the things they learn in school and they say, what's the point? Well, there is a point, but the teachers generally miss it themselves. And that is the bigger picture. Why did things happen? Why did that event take place? What are all the social connections and attitudes and learning and 
ignorance and, you know, beliefs and how did all that work together to create this momentous event? That's important because you know what? Right now we're in similar situations. There's all kinds of things going on. There are people who are acting as catalysts that do things that suddenly change the world, change how we think, uh, suddenly get people riled up, create new beliefs, sometimes create new ignorance. You know, you know, we did understand something before. Now maybe we, re- you know, we revert to, to, um, acting in ways that are, that are less uh, informed. So we have all this going on and to see that big picture and understand how it works. What are all the, what are all the, the, the forces involved? And these are emotional forces, not just force, you know, force of arms or force of numbers, but emotional forces, attitudinal forces, belief forces. How does all that go to create an outcome? Because we're doing that now. Our reality is replaying a lot of these same things. You know, a lot of our culture isn't that much different than it was 500 years ago. A lot of things are similar. So it's important because we learn something about ourselves and we learn something about the world and we learn something about how people interact and what makes things happen. And how does it happen? Because then we, knowing that, can become one of those catalysts. We, knowing that, can actually put ourselves in places where we change things and change people. Not because we stand up and make speeches, but because we see big pictures. We see events. We see how they're moving. We can prepare for them. So all of that education is a very important thing. You know, they teach math in such a way as it's just plug and chug. You memorize how to write down right answers. You memorize how to how to get good grades on a test. And anybody with a brain will look at that and say, what's the point? You see, well, basically there is no point. Except in the future, as you grow up, being able to track things and understand quantity and the logic of quantity, which is all math is, becomes a very valuable and important tool for you to do that. Yes, somebody gives you a piece of paper and it's got 20, you know, uh, math problems on it. And you're supposed to solve all 20 and hand it in and, and you get checks on them all if they're right and you get a grade on it. There's very little value in that other than learning to manipulate the basics. So sometimes when you're at the beginning of learning, just doing the drudge work of learning how to manipulate the basics is necessary. Like when you were uh, three years old or two years old and you learned the alphabet, you learned to sing the song, A, B, C, D, you know, we sing that song so that we can remember the alphabet. And I imagine there's a lot of little three-year-olds are saying, what's the point? <laughs> you know? Okay, I, re- I'm, I memorize all these names. Okay, so what? What's the point? Well, later on in life, there is a point. You know, that's where you have to start. You have to begin with the basics and learn the basic things that enable you to learn more things. So I, I feel your pain. I've uh, been there too. I did not find school a place I really enjoyed going to. It was something that uh, I often thought the same thing. What is the point? Why am I going through this? You know, the very little motivation to learn and absolutely no excitement about learning it until I actually ran into a few really good teachers. 
And in my environment, that was exceptional. You know, most teachers just weren't all that good. They were just doing their job, getting paid, getting a check and going home. You know, they were doing what they were told to do on the curriculum that they were given. And it wasn't very exciting for them either. But I ran into a few really good teachers who did excite me. And I thought the learning was wonderful. And I loved to learn. At least I found that out. I just didn't like going over the same stuff over again and never actually getting to the part that was important. Well, you may have to do that on your own. If you don't run into these really good teachers, you may have to figure that out on your own. But you're still going to have to know the alphabet. You're still going to have to know how to add and subtract and multiply and divide and do all of that junk that's been drilled into you for the past you know, eight years. So you got to suck it up, learn the basics, but also start looking for the bigger picture. Start looking for what's really important about that history. What is it about that history that we can apply to today? How are things happening now that are a shadow or an image of what happened then? And you'll see there's a lot of parallels that help you understand things in a much better way. So even if the teacher doesn't go there, you should go there on your own. Find the value in this stuff and realize that, all right, you're 16. In a couple of years, you're going to be getting into a college, probably. And if you get into a college, suddenly it's not you're not spoon-fed information and asked to regurgitate it on a test. That happens in the lower grades. And that's when you're doing the very basics. The higher up you get in education, the more it is about thinking, the more it is about seeing big pictures. So as you get into college and get into graduate school, suddenly learning is a whole lot more fun because it's not read this stuff and be able to, you know, memorize it and and tell me what's in it in a week from now. That's very hard to find interest in. But learning does get better. The higher up on the levels you go, the more fun it is, the more exciting it is. And eventually at the graduate level, you can find a lot of fun in doing interesting new things, thinking original thoughts. But most of the education you're going to find in your life that it really is going to be important to you is what is how you educate yourself. What do you make of these things? All right, go ahead and memorize all the dates and people's names, regurgitate them on the test, get good grades, because that'll help you get into a good college. That's the price you have to pay. You know, suck it up and, and do what you need to do to, to uh, escape. Uh, don't blow it off because that just creates more problems. Now, you know, the, the things that are more fun are out of your reach. See, the problem, if you if you work at your studies to where you learn things that enable you to do creative work, then all the rest of your life you'll be doing creative work and that'll be fun and your careers will be fun. If you stop before you get to the point where you can do creative work, then all the rest of your life is going to be flipping burgers someplace or waiting tables or, you know, pumping gas or doing things that don't require big picture creative thinking. It is turning a crank. And then your life becomes drudgery and very boring because you just do the same things over and over and over again. There's no challenge. And work is just some place you have to go in order to earn the money to pay the bills. 
And that's not nearly as happy a place to be as work is someplace that allows me to create, allows me to solve problems and have fun. So the higher up you get in the educational process, the more you understand the bigger pictures you have, the more the rest of your life is going to be happy, is going to be positive and challenging and creative. The quicker you get out and start turning a crank on something, yeah, 18, it'd be really nice to have a job and have a car and, you know, have independence and all that sort of thing. But you're at a point where getting into that creative strata is really hard to do. It's really difficult because you don't necessarily have all the tickets that'll help you get there. So some of it is just suck it up and do it because that's where you are. That's the way your school is. And you need to succeed and be good at it just so you can get into the stuff that'll be more fun later. And some of it is teach yourself. Don't just learn what the teacher tells you. But when you read about that history, take in all the stuff that isn't written, all the stuff that you can surmise from from the bigger picture. Always look at big pictures, not little pictures. Who did what? What's their name? When did they do it? Is tiny little data in the little picture. Not all that important. Why did they do it? How did it happen to work? Why did it have a big impact? Well, those are bigger, bigger thoughts. And those you will find interesting when you have them. So I know it's hard. I've been there. I felt that way. But uh, there is light at the end of that tunnel. And it helps if you just suck it up, get really good grades, and have more and more opportunity as you get up toward that end of learning that is creative and exciting and fun. But where you are now at 16 is not creative, it's not that exciting, and it's not that much fun. But you just have to learn that alphabet and learn that math and learn all those facts just because that's the way your school is. You'll just have to do it and and uh, excel at it, even if it isn't much fun because it'll help create the credentials and the learning that you need to get to the levels that are fun. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Tom. That makes me want to go back to school again, too. Nicholas, you've been waiting to ask your two questions. Please go ahead. Uh, yeah, I had a question about uh, PMR uh, and uh, nudges uh, because after listening to a lot of hours of your work on YouTube, it's always nudges that it's the most interesting. And I wonder if we can say uh, some new information about it in terms of how we can look for it and how it usually show up. Or is it like impossible to say for other people than yourself? I'm not sure I got that question. Run it by me again, Nicholas. And if you look for nudges, is it If you like, look for, for nudges? Yeah, in terms of um, uh, how you explain nudges, it's usually just a little bump to remind you of uh, your intent and basically mm -hmm. implementing the work. And um, my question is, if you look for nudges, is it almost like they are hiding or is it a formula we can use to be more aware of nudges? Well, you're probably talking about nudges that come from without you, not nudges coming from within you, not nudges of your own creation, because there's both. You have nudges of your own creation, and you have nudges that will come from outside of you that have nothing to do with you, but you're being nudged, say, by the system to 
go in a certain direction or do a certain thing. Well, you, you recognize those as intuition. You just have a, a feeling, a sense that you need to do something or need not to do something. And it's not rational. It's not logical. It's not, uh, something that, uh, you necessarily would have gotten to through analysis, but it's something that just comes to you to do. And it comes to you in kind of a, a clear way. And if you don't do it, if you say, nah, I don't really don't want to go there, you'll get that nudge again. You know, it comes back up, you know, maybe a month later, it comes back up and you get that same nudge again. So one characteristic of a nudge from the system is that it's persistent. Another characteristic is it's not logical. It's not rational. It's just a feeling that you have of a thing you should do, a way you should react, a way that you shouldn't react. You just get that feeling. And that is what we call intuition. Intuition is just a name for your channel or your connection to the larger system. And it can be connected to other individuals, other individual unit of conscious, or it can be connected to the system. But you get this information uh, mind to mind, if you will. Whether it's the system mind or whether it's another individual's mind, you get these things. And these things will nudge you. And you can, over time, you'll see a purpose in the nudging. You'll see a direction that whenever you kind of take these nudges and say, okay, I'll take that that intuition. I'll take that advice. I'll take that thing and I'll do that. You find that there's value in it. Like sometimes I felt, now this is probably 30, 40 years ago, this happened a lot. I'd be doing some mundane thing like driving home from work and I would just get an idea. Oh, don't go the way you usually go. Go around this, go around another way. And mostly in the beginning, I'd ignore those things. I said, yeah, but that's the long way. I don't want to go that way. And what happens is then I'd find myself in this horrendous traffic jam or some other kind of a problem. Whereas I had just paid attention to that nudge, I could have missed the whole thing. So it's not that the system is trying to save me from traffic jams. It's that the system was trying to train me to pay attention to the nudges. You see? So it works like that. Yeah, the system really doesn't care so much of whether I sit in a traffic jam or not. That's not that important to, you know, who I am and what I'm doing. But it does give me practice in paying attention to nudges. So pay attention to your your nudges. You might call them hunches or gut feelings or whatever you want to call it and see where they take you. And you may find that some gut feelings or nudges don't particularly lead you to any place good but some do some seem to always end up being really good ideas when you look back at them well then that'll help you differentiate between the useful nudges coming from say the larger consciousness system that are teaching you how to be sensitive to nudges or giving you uh, direct help from the nudges that are just your own creation your own uh, stuff that you're just coming up with, you know, your own noise basically in your channel. So that's how you differentiate. You act on them carefully, pay attention to what's going on. See, paying attention is the whole issue. Living in the moment, be, you know, be here now, uh, understanding. All right. I did get a nudge because a lot of people get nudges and don't have any idea they're getting nudges. 
They just do things or not do things, but they don't have any awareness that they even have nudges. There's a lot of very intellectual people that tell you that they, there is no intuition. Intuition is a, is a fantasy. You know, there is no intuition. Well, there isn't for them because they don't pay attention to that. Because if it isn't rational, they discard it. And these intuitions and nudges are not rational. So work with them. And pretty soon you'll find out, well, whenever I kind of get this gut feeling to do this, man, that always gets me into trouble. Well, then discard that as something that you should do. When you get that, go the other way. When you get this other nudge that it's just this little kind of tickle in your mind that says, you know, you ought to turn left here instead of right. And you don't really know why, but you got that. Well, do it and see what happens. Life is an experiment. Your existence is an experiment. It's not something to get through. It's something to learn from. So don't be afraid to treat life as an experiment. All right. I don't know why I should turn, you know, right here instead of left or vice versa, but I did get that nudge. I'm aware enough to know that I got a nudge and I'm aware enough to know that I'm going to do the experiment and see what happens. You see, it's that level of awareness that you need. And if you have that level of awareness, then 10 years later, you've really got it all sorted out. You know exactly the kind of nudges that come from the LCS. And those nudges, when you get them and they feel like that, you do them. Because when you don't do them, you end up getting slapped. Things don't work out right. So, And there's other kinds of nudges you get that you realize that's just your own ego trying to convince you of something or trying to uh, make you feel better or some other kind of thing. And then you real, you let those go. Those are not useful nudges. Or you get nudges from other people who are thinking about you, wanting you to do or be or something else. Well, those may or may not be useful, but eventually you learn to sort those out. And you know what that's about too. And now you can integrate that into you. Well, other people would like me to do this. I wonder why. What's the point of that, you see? So suddenly now all of these nudges turn into this information flow that you're immersed in, that you're aware of, and you can learn from. And you do it all just experimentally, just trying it and see what happens. You can't get a map. There's no, you know, there's no prescription. It's a thing. You have to sort through it. So that's the way you go through it. You have to first become aware. And then after you become aware, you have to be a... You know, you have to be a scientist. You have to do experiment and see how these things work. And then you have to do it enough times that it's not just a one-off because any kind of weird thing could happen just once, right? All kinds of strange happen, things happen just once, but eventually you'll find trends and eventually you'll find relationships and connections to things. And then pretty soon you can start carrying on a conversation with those nudges that always nudge you in a profitable direction. And it turns into a conversation rather than a nudge. Now you've got an online, you know, uh, link in, in language with that nudging source and you've, you've made connections. So all of it just has to grow through your own awareness attached to your ability to experiment and do experiments over and over again until you can make some sort of sense of what's going on and why it's going on. In other words, you have to deal and interact with life at a more granular level than what most people do. Most people don't interact with it at that level. 
they get a they get a nudge or something they do an intellectual assessment of it and if it doesn't seem like it's a good thing to do they ignore it and keep on going and they are the people that don't if you ask them well do you get nudges they'd say no i don't think so do you ever get a gut feeling sure they'd say i get those but i learned that you can't depend on them sometimes they work out sometimes they don't so i've learned the best thing to do is just use my intellect and ignore them see they haven't gotten to the point that they've been able to create information out of what they experience as noise. There's information in that noise, but you have to have the awareness and you have to do the the experimental work in order to to get that information stream out of the noise. That that is super interesting. I noticed you mentioned trends and that's that was actually my second question because Sometimes I see those trends with new people I meet that is almost too random, like where they are, what, what they say, and um, just the situation that gets created from it. Uh, is that so? Is that the same topic in in terms of like investigating what's behind everything? Uh, yes, the, it is the same topic. But the point I haven't mentioned yet is in this being an experimentalist. You have to be skeptical. You see, I always talk about being open-minded and skeptical. The being skeptical is an absolutely necessary part of this because once you, once you are the scientist and you are being an experimentalist, you have to be skeptical of the results. Okay. I got this nudge or I got this information and I'm going to see whether that's right or not, I'm going to experience, I'm going to experiment, I'm going to try it, I'm going to probe at it a little bit and see what it does. But you have to be skeptical all the time. If you start jumping to conclusions, oh, I got this nudge and it says that I ought to do this, I ought to go, I ought to walk up to that person and introduce myself because I got a nudge that I should do that. So let me just do that. And then when that person says something, you automatically make a bond and connect and go on. Well, maybe that's just you wanting it to be you know, something big and important. And you're creating that big and importance out of your own ego need to have that big and important. Ah, you got to be skeptical. So a good scientist doesn't lead the witness. You know, you just do things and you observe. You let things happen on their own. You don't push relationships in a direction. You You let relationships generate themselves in a direction. If you start pushing them in the direction you want them to go, it usually doesn't work out well. You have to let them develop on their own. If they develop in the way you want it to go, well, good. If they don't, well, that's okay too. Stay skeptical. Maybe that isn't the right relationship or maybe not in the right way. You don't don't make things happen. You let things happen. But now you can interact with it in a way that is honest, you know, the way you feel, not because you're being manipulative, but this is just the way you feel. So express yourself, be honest, be open, be transparent, and then let all the rest of it work itself out as it may. Be aware, be an experimenter, be skeptical. And if you do that over some time, for me, it was probably decades. It's probably still going on. You know, it, it, it happens all your life you'll start being able to sift the information from the noise. And in the beginning, your ego is the source of most of the noise, your ego and your fear. 
create a huge amount of noise that you have to sort through. That's why getting rid of the fear, the ego, and the, and the beliefs are like the first core thing we have to do because that's getting rid of the noise. Everything gets clearer and easier once you get rid of that stuff. But we know that we have that stuff, so we have to be skeptical you know, all the time that we're not misleading ourselves because that's the direction we want to go. So that's the way we deal with with life in general. Be aware, plugged in, be an experimenter, be honest, be real, express yourself the way you are, and then just let it happen the way it the way it happens. Don't try to make it happen in any particular way just because you say, "Oh, I'd, this would be really good if it happened like this." That's that's where you're starting to become the manipulator rather than the experimenter. So <clears throat> that's general. You know, these things I talk about, you know, we just talk about an application like this is, you know, the application of what do you do with nudges, you know, and that sort of thing. But all of these things I talk about are, are true as applied to all facets of life. You know, they're just generally true about your interaction with life and with other people. You know, even, the, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, a 16 year old who has trouble being enthusiastic about school. Well, the things that I told her weren't just things that a 16-year-old not being enthusiastic for school could learn from. These are all general general properties of life. You know, there are some things you just have to learn and get through in life. Sometimes you just have to get the basics. And sometimes that's not fun, but you have to do that. And sometimes, you know, you, you have to, uh, uh, well, always you should look for bigger pictures. You see, so what I was telling the young lady is also a good answer for life in general. And what I'm telling you about nudges is also stuff that you can apply to life in general. So most of my answers are like that. They're not just as specific as maybe they sound. They're, they're general answers that apply to a whole lot of things in, in, in many ways. So we can all learn from the problems that a 16-year-old has with not being enthusiastic about school. There's something in there that can help everybody see the world a little differently. Realize that life is like that sometimes, and you have to deal with it in a positive way. So, yes, things I'm telling you are very general. It's not just tied up to a specific thing, but life is like that. It, you have to be an experimentalist. You have to be skeptical. You have to be aware. And as much as you have fear that gives you ego and beliefs, that's always in the system. It makes it hard to pay attention. It makes it hard to, to see those nudges. It uh, it makes you want to intellectualize everything. It makes you want to use your your uh, intellect to manipulate things to be the way you know would be best. You know, and all of those things are all general knowledge that is helpful to just almost everything you do in life. So you can apply the same you know the same understanding. In many, many places.